You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey everyone, Matt from Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the Fully Occupied Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on your favorite listening platform or just shoot us a note at marketing at occupier.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests, topics you'd like to hear about, ask us any questions you have, or just say hi. Enjoy the show. Dan, welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we'll get in all the details about your business and, and the market and all the cool stuff that you're doing, but why don't you give our audience a little primer on, uh, on who you are? Sounds great. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Dan Rosenzweig. I'm the uh, co-founder of Kettle Space. Um, so I gr- got into real estate in like 2011 uh, when I graduated from uh, Vanderbilt University. My first job out of school was at a bankruptcy and restructuring firm called Alvarez and Marsal. Um, we were doing a lot of like <laughs> focused on a lot of litigation around, um, you know, fallout 0708 financial crisis. So um, our biggest client at the time was Lehman Brothers. And so we were working on um, unwinding what to this day remains the largest corporate bankruptcy of all time. So um, definitely uh, started drinking from a fire hose day one. Um, over my time at Alvarez, also worked on other large deals like the Detroit bankruptcy, um, worked with the state of Louisiana to help them, um, you know, hopefully use their tax dollars in, in a more efficient manner um, to return uh, more value to their, their constituents. And I think most relevant for this, uh, my journey was we were contracted by the New York City Economic Development Corporation under Bloomberg to uh, assess New York City's ability to attract and uh, foster uh, tech talent going forward. And it was through a real estate lens. And the idea was New York real estate, as we all know, tends to be pretty expensive. And uh, what, could, what could New York potentially do to attract more tech talent, more companies uh, going forward? So um, that was a fun experience. It's actually... First, where I met Adam Newman, um, I also got the opportunity to meet, you know, Governor, uh, excuse me, Mayor Bloomberg at the time, um, which was great. Um, and that led me to my next role, which was uh, on the real estate team at WeWork. So I uh, joined there. I was the fourth uh, hire on the real estate team employee, I believe, 241. Um, <laughs> this was in um, early 2015. And they had just raised at a $5 billion valuation. So, um, you know, clearly had had made some serious progress uh, before I stepped in the door. My role there was uh, mostly focused initially on underwriting. So I was underwriting the global portfolio. At that point, it consisted of mostly uh, US and Europe deals. And uh, once that capital came in, the focus began to start to go to other continents as well, South America, Asia, um, basically everything but Antarctica. And I'm sure if, if Adam had his way, uh, there, we probably ha- would have been there by now. So, you know, that was a great experience. Uh, started focusing on uh, deal negotiation and execution here domestically and spent a lot of time surrounded by a lot of really talented people, um, much smarter than myself. And I started to hear the same thing, which was asset light is the future of co working. So, you know, during this time, I'm traveling and, uh, you know, I'm walking, touring buildings all day, doing site selection stuff. And when I had to do my actual work, I would work out of 
a hotel lobby or out of a restaurant or a cafe. Um, and I started to realize a few things. One, um, these spaces are really nice. Two, there are a lot of other people just like me using them as a workspace. And then three, their primary purpose might make sense as a workspace um, because uh, they generally seem pretty underutilized, right? So there were a good number of still available seats, especially in really large spaces like hotels. So I thought to myself, if Asset Light is the future of co-working, then perhaps there's an opportunity to, to sort of cut the middleman out. And by that, I mean, instead of taking large amounts of capital in order to build these beautiful built environments that, that you know, we work and, and a lot of other co-working folks had successfully done. What if instead of that, we just partnered with folks who had already built them, right? Uh, like hotels and restaurants, and we instead changed their main use, right? During certain periods when it made sense to working, right? Providing the same, um, you know, fast Wi-Fi and outlets and coffee and stuff that you could get at a, a typical co-working space. And if we did that, would we be able to deliver you know, a similar experience at a uh, fraction of the cost. And in doing so, also give the owner a, uh, a new high margin um, revenue stream and access uh, new uh, users and, and paying customers. So um, that's kind of where the Kettle Space journey began. Um, you know, with my finance background, I started building the model. Um, and in early 2016, I left WeWork to start Kettle Space. Awesome. It's a pretty cool story of just learning and applying that learning to just a, an open space. And it, it all happened in a hotel lobby, which is awesome. Um, Cause I've been, I've been on that uh, traveling salesman routine as well. And I typically, well, I, ha I had a, while I had a WeWork pass, I would always kind of try to find the most convenient kind of quick, lightweight thing I could do. And, and, you know, just get work done from, like you said, sitting at a bar or a hotel lobby or something like that. How, how did you underwrite this um, from the perspective of sizing the market? Like how much underutilized space is out there, whether it is hotel space or educational space, university space, restaurant space. And then like, what was the, the reception, the initial reception of, of the audience? For sure. So to answer your first question, as it exists in this moment today, there is a billion square feet of vacant space. And by vacant, it, I'm not even touching the stuff you just described, which is underutilized space, right? Underutilized implies that there is a tenant in place who is, you know, creating some value or at least right. paying rent. It's being right? used for something. It's being yeah. used for something. So there's a billion square feet of fully vacant space, about 800 of it in office and 200 of it in, in, in retail. Um, so obviously there's, the, you know, a big hole in the market as, as, as a starting point. In terms of underutilized space, right, it really varies um, over the period of the day, right? So in real estate, we always talk about highest and best use, which tends to be a veiled way of saying what's going to make the most money, uh, you know, per square foot over a period of time. I think historically speaking, the increments of time that we could make those assessments were generally longer, right? They were years, weeks, months. And I think with the advent of technology, right, in sort of this on-demand, um, you know, view of the world, it, it sort of shortened those increments and allowed us to think, okay, what's the highest and best use of any given asset uh, within hours, minutes, um, seconds, right? Uh, and I don't, I don't want to be like too, too extreme with the view, but um, if you look at a company like Uber as an example, right, they were able to take underutilized capacity within cars, right? And then that would, in, in a lot of ways, it was a way 
right? For owners of cars who had downtime to make money and for people to get access to these cars. And in doing so, it was a slightly more efficient model, right? Than the, the previous like cab model. So it's in a similar view, I think uh, technology is, is, a big, is a big catalyst here. And it's allowing us, right, as asset owners and as, um, as individuals to think about what is the highest and best use of my asset at a given point in time, right? And that could mean in this hour, it's slightly different than the next hour. So when it comes to these types of assets, right, I started right, looking at restaurants and, and hotels and all these types of spaces and thinking, okay, what, what's their highest and best use normally? Well, for restaurants, um, I started to understand more about their, their um, business model and uh, it took me a while to, to get there. So I did not start uh, with fully understanding how helpful we could be to restaurants. I just liked restaurants from the standpoint that as a simple, like a layman, I would walk around cities and I would see a bunch of empty seats in a restaurant. Yeah. And I saw the potential upside, right? Being like, okay, if the environment in a WeWork or a cafe or something like that is similar to that of a restaurant, why are cafes packed? Like Starbucks, you can't find a seat. But restaurants, right, it's very easy to find a seat, especially around lunchtime, right? Because the way people consume, you know, with fast casual, they tended to just eat at their desks, right? So from a highest and best use standpoint, my thought was maybe during the daytime, some of these underutilized assets could be utilized a little bit better, right, as dedicated workspaces in some way, shape, or form. And then they could revert back to their highest and best use that, that the owners were used to, which is selling food and beverage or, you know, in the hotel environment, either food and beverage or just creating a comfortable environment for guests to return to after a day of shopping or touring or, you know, museum perusing over, you know, at that, at that point in time. And what I saw was in terms of correlation, like the periods of time that, um, you know, that these restaurant owners and hotel owners were we're getting the most use out of these assets. It didn't really correlate well with office hours, which was great. It, it, create, it meant that there was a big opportunity to potentially uh, increase the value proposition during those, what, what would they would traditionally call off hours, right? So if you're a hotel guest, you come down for breakfast and then you, you go and explore the city you're in for the day. Or if you're a business traveler, you go and you take your meetings for the day. And at the end of the day, you return to the space. So call it like you're gone from call it nine to five, right? And from nine to five, that's prime working hours. So, you know, from a, you know, I, I am probably overbearing this point, but from a highest and best use standpoint, it became clear that there was a way to deliver value to folks who were looking for a, you know, a, a work type environment and do so uh, in these, in call it alternative spaces. Yeah. That's cool. So fast forward to today, like what does the portfolio of spaces look like under, under your brand? For sure. So first I'll start with like pre-pandemic and then I'll, I'll talk about sort of how the pandemic affected us and then where we are today, right? Because uh, I think in prop tech, just like many other industries, the pandemic did have a pretty significant impact. You know, anyone who had a physical presence like we did um, was, was definitely adversely affected. Um, you know, obviously there are some businesses who, who were able to thrive. Uh, you know, most of them were or, you know, e-commerce and, and sort of digital um, did, did a really nice job of, of, you know, being set up for success during this period. Um, so going into the pandemic, we had um, several thousand members and we had 22 uh, spaces uh, between hotels and restaurants uh, in Manhattan and Brooklyn. 
and on i think we're we're now i think it's this week is the one year anniversary of the pandemic um I, they call it like march 11th march 13th somewhere yep. in there um we you know as a as a team uh sort of got together and we're like you know this this thing's pretty scary what can we do to protect our ourselves our families and our members uh first and foremost so um we made the very challenging decision to um effectively pause operations so what that meant was calling all 22 restaurant owners and saying, you know, cause, cause our arrangements and I can get into that a little bit more, but they tend to just be partnership agreements and, um, and profit shares. Right. Um, so under these asset light economics, right. We create upside, but it also helps me hedge downside. Right. And in, in this scenario, um, we weren't put like between a rock and obviously we were between a rock and a hard place in terms of like people's safety and health. But when it came down to like having significant liabilities, we were able to reduce them um, very quickly, right. right? Which is, um, I would say, in a you know a, a structural advantage um, over over other folks in the market. So you know we we made that hard decision, and at the same time, we sent out a notice to all of our members that we were pausing everyone's membership. So we weren't going to charge anyone a dime for space that they couldn't access. And so for that week, that was kind of like, okay, what do we do now, right? So unfortunately, we had to furlough some of our team. Because a lot of our, uh, our team at that point was very focused on physical operations. So we had community managers. We had operations folks um, who, who were overseeing them that, um, you know, when revenue goes to zero, you got you to gotta make some hard decisions. Um, and so that, that, was, that was a tough week. Um, there's no, no question about yeah. it. Um, so our team, we went from like 25 to 10 uh, in the course of seven days. Wow. Yeah, that's tough, man. Um, all around is tough, right? Like the the restaurant operators or whoever are your hosts are, are are trying to obviously keep their businesses running and alive, and are probably facing the same you know decision. So it's like this cascading effect of you know of of, of managing risk, and then ultimately, you know, I, I think probably luckily the way that mo- the most of the world reacted to it is probably those thousands and so members of yours were hopefully able to transition quickly to work from home with a Wi-Fi connection and, and, you know, get their stuff done like as they could. But I would imagine there's still this pent up demand for people getting back out there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that's absolutely right. So our focus initially like immediately became, how can we help people? Right. Like it, it had always kind of been that and our sense of doing that was like giving them a great environment to work in. Right. Uh, and then it was, okay, we're all going to be stuck in our homes for, an undefined period of time. Right. I, I remember, you know, I, some of us naively were like, maybe this will be a couple of weeks. Maybe <laughs> it'll be a couple of months. Right. Yeah. Like uh, I remember for the first time, and this is kind of the fun stuff we, we do. Um, you know, we had one of our members who is an epidemiologist and um, she, she, we, she, we did a, a panel and, you know, I guess it was a panel of one. So it was really just a presentation, <laughs> but you know, we asked her, it was just a big Q and a, and we were like, okay, so what, what can we expect? And she was like, guys, just like, do yourselves a favor, um, hunker down and cancel, cancel the year. Like 2020 is, is you're, it, it, it's, it's going to be a tough one. And I think that was the first moment when I was like, Oh, Oh snap. Like she's right. <laughs> uh, this is going to be, this is going to be a real long haul, but on, I would say a more on a positive note, immediately focused on um, how can we help our members? And so we were, we literally called at that point we had 2,500. And so we called everyone and said, how can we help? And uh, the, the main threads we were hearing, well, first, the question was, are you okay? And most people were like, you know, in some stage of, of yes, but, you know, obviously shook up and business affected, very, very, you know, challenging. Um, and they said two things. One, 
uh, I need to continue to help build my book of business. Uh, and then two, help me save money, right? So we very quickly pivoted our, um, all of our physical stuff. So by the way, like we, and I can go into it a little bit as like what the, if I was a member, what the experience was like, right? Before, before the pandemic. So I haven't, I can do that at some point in the near future, but we took all of our stuff that was physical and we moved it online, right? Uh, not that, probably not a huge surprise. So we set up a Slack community because the, that was a, it's a pretty strong resource. We use it on our team already. And so members could come on and communicate with each other on a daily basis. You know, we created some channels around, I don't know, it's kind of similar to like stuff you'd see on Reddit today, like around, you know, animals and uh, job, job referrals and uh, doing favors for one another, all that kind of stuff. And then on the other side, we have like events and content, right? So we had weekly fitness classes, um, yoga and hit classes and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and as well as like education focused classes. So um, how to build your marketing funnel, how to uh, grow your business on Facebook, how to network more effectively, et cetera, stuff like that. And um, I think the key here is it's all member, uh, member generated and member donated. Like we don't pay people for this. It's all community driven, which um, I think is pretty cool. Um, and obviously, I think the, the upside for folks is it, it is a means of, of, of building their businesses and getting their, repu- you know, getting yeah. their, their name out there, right? So I don't think everyone does it 100% purely altruistically. But at the same time, it is a wonderful, positive cycle to see people uh, donate their time uh, day in and day out uh, for the benefit of others. So um, that's definitely a beautiful thing to, to see. Yeah. And so that continues today, by the way. So we still... You know, we're still running five to seven online events a week and, you know, attendance has been good and, you know, people are staying engaged. And for a lot of folks, right, um, this, I would like to think we provided a, a nice, uh, like, lifeline to the outside world because not everyone is, you know, has, has a, you know, a family or, or other sorts of folks. And a lot of us were are New York based. So we were in tiny apartments, uh, sort of cut off from the world. So it was a good means to bring people together. Yeah, it's, it's- so, it's so, I, so um, ironic. Yeah, go uh, it's ahead. just the irony of saying that is like we're in New York and cut off from the world, but it's so true, right? Everybody all, all of a sudden had to transition to this online life where they're working from these tiny apartments. And, and it sounds like what you, that platform that you developed was just adding, adding that layer of kind of personal interaction that was missing like very abruptly. Yeah, I think um, human connection, like we as humans, like, you know, even I think even for introverts, there's still a, a degree of connection needed, right? We sort of feed off each other. That's kind of what I love about this model is it, it really allows cross-pollination of people and ideas and, and you know, diverse folks from all walks of life, yeah. uh, international and domestic. It, it's pretty amazing to see. So, um, and I, yeah, yeah I was going to say, in one of our previous chats, you talked a little bit about your work with NYU and kind of that um, interesting use case can you, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with them? Yeah, I would be happy to. So, um, okay. So, so in April, you know, we, we got all the, uh, the digital stuff set up and we continued to iterate over the course of, you know, into the summer. Um, and we were actually gearing up to reopen when I got a call from the head of real estate at NYU. And they said, uh, you know, Dan, we're familiar with Kettle Space. Um, you know, we've seen your signs around and we had operated sort of near campus, right? We had a, a few venues uh, in and around uh, Midtown South and they so interestingly enough nyu just as a background is the third largest real estate owner in this private real estate owner in the city of new york 
um, behind two uh, Catholic church entities, um, Trinity Church and then the, um, the, the international like Roman Catholic church. So um, they own a huge portfolio. We're talking about like, um, you know, millions of square feet, very, very big. Um, and uh, so they, they said, we don't have enough space for our students with, you know, due to social distancing and our desire to bring as many people back to campus safely as we can. We don't have enough space for our students to study. And so our product, right, uh, maybe this is a good time to just kind of dive into what it is. It's, you know, um, as a user of Kettle Space, you would pop open the Kettle Space app. You would see a map of all the Kettle Space locations around you. You could click on one and see photos of the space, the amenities available, like if it had a printer or uh, coffee or, or you know what have you, um, and you can book a seat. So you show up, you scan in, and you you know get to work. And there's an outlet there. Um, you can get bottomless uh, artisan coffee. Um, we used to we partnered with Think Coffee, big fans of those guys. Um, and yeah, just get to work and, and do your thing, right? So that, that's kind of what what the experience was like for users. So similar in a lot of ways to I would say like what a, a library was like when you know yeah. if I think back to my undergrad days right you kind of um, minus the app part but you when you need to get work done you you hop over to the library you find an open you you know you roam the halls till you find an open carol uh, you plop down and you get to work um, you, then you then and, you realize like what am I doing here I don't want to be in the library and you, and you, and you, that's you go true. hang out with your friends a hundred percent yeah you know as a little you, you had to find that work-life balance for sure but um you know, uh, so, so yeah, they were, they, they needed more seating effectively and they needed it in a socially distanced, you know, COVID safe manner. Um, and so they came to us because we obviously have a, a, a relatively creative view of what assets can be. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, the reason I think they had, you know, reached out to some other folks as well. The problem was they wanted it to effectively be on campus and it couldn't be in a building that they already owned because they were already reallocating every single square foot of their existing portfolio for some use, whether it be socially distanced classrooms, socially distanced labs, socially distanced study spaces, just like what we're doing. There just wasn't enough seating. So pretty quickly, again, this was like, I got the call in, in, in late June and we started co conversing and the, and the need sort of uh, evolved. Flash forward to like early August, I'm running around, you know, uh, you know Midtown South Manhattan with, uh, with the NYU real estate team um, poking our heads into restaurants and hotels and uh, checking out event spaces and all types of different assets uh, in, in and around campus, right? Um, but there was a very strict radius restriction, which made it, made it a little bit challenging, but we were able to get it done. So by, like, I would say by Labor Day, which was like right when classes started, we had um, across 30,000 square feet, 500 seats uh, up and running for students. And then our app was supporting uh, their ability to find, book, and check in and check out of, of any of those spaces. Cool. Um, so uh, big lift, but we were able to get it done. Um, and it was a good, like if, if you're a Kettle Space user, you used to, you, you would get access to the entire network. So the idea was if in normal co-working, you would pay for one seat in one location, at least that's what it used to be, right? You for Kettle Space would pay one low fee and get access to the entire network. Um, this was a slightly, it's like a privatized version of that. So these were dedicated spaces just for NYU. Um, they were all staffed by Kettle Space personnel. Um, and they were, I mean, like COVID lockdown, you know, if we saw your nose, you were out, out of there kind of yep. thing. Um, and then our app also integrated with their NYU health app. So we knew that folks were COVID safe before they were able to make any reservations. So. You know, it was a it was a big tech lift to to sort of uh, re we sort of reskin the app and we made it 
uh, you know, NYU centric and it's, it had the, you know, the scarlet and white and, and, and black of, uh, of, of NYU. Um, and it felt very, um, I guess, personalized in that yeah. way. And, um, you know, at this point, as of today, we've got over 10,000 users on it. We're powering um, 150 rooms across 80 buildings, uh, close to 4,000 seats. And we've had like 65,000 reservations since September wow. 1st. So. That's incredible. Um, That's so- like, um, you know, if you go back to your description of your idea phase of the company, it's probably one of those use cases that you thought about, but you, you went a different route. You went the restaurant um, kind of public space route, and then you kind of come back to this situation, which was forced forced on NYU by the pandemic. And it seems like it's unlocked even like larger extension of what you were trying to solve in the first place. Completely. I think, you know, we're trying to solve a dual problem, right? I want for my users, I want them to get safe access to some beautiful spaces in their vicinity. Um, And I can get into that personalized uh, experience a little bit more down the line, but that's effectively what they're looking for, right? A good bang for your buck, but a great, great space, right? A space that they're going to feel comfortable in. And then for the, for on the flip side, right? Like we're a marketplace. So my, my other customer is, is the owner and operator, right? And they need effectively, right? They're looking for as much revenue as they can get. And um, so in this model, right? It's a win for both, right? So whether I, you privatize certain elements of it, right? Over the course of a broader portfolio, you're still going to deliver a lot of value to, to, you know, to users, uh, even if they don't necessarily have access to those privatized spaces, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a bigger win for the people who are sort of in, in that micro environment, right? So the restaurant owner was making more per square foot because the space was privatized. So they were really happy, uh, especially during COVID, right? When, when revenue was really hard to come by. So, um, you know, we sort of, uh, I, I look at this as NYU investing in the small businesses that make its campus, right? It's, it's surrounding area that make NYC so vibrant. And I know it sounds kind of corny, but they literally were doing that. And uh, I think that's a great testament to their, uh, their vision into what makes, you know, NYU so special. Yeah. And that's the campus surrounding it is, is NYC, which is, you know, in, in my highly biased opinion, the best city in the right. world. So so it, this is, you know, within the umbrella of what we were looking for from day one. Would I have started here? No. But I also couldn't have started there, right? It's, it's something that certain opportunities come along as you're just going down the path of, right, once you're in the game, you know, you can only win it if you're in it, right? So you, you just got to keep pushing well, you, along. Yeah, you learn, um, you iterate, and you, you uncover opportunities as you keep grinding, you know, and they, they present ex- themselves. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so we, we actually met with the NYU folks again yesterday and they're we're talking fall and they uh they're looking for classroom they're so they're going to tap us for classroom spaces now too which which is super exciting so you know for for any if there are any landlords listening any any retail owners listening and you're in the vicinity of of uh you know washington square park um let's talk because there's going to be a lot of opportunity coming your way in the in the near future Sweet. uh in the in the couple minutes we have left here dan Give us your quick take on the future of co-working. You, you obviously lived the rocket ship life at WeWork. Uh, you went off, you did your own thing with a different um, idea. After the, you know, the people start going back to the office, what does is, what is the space as a service, flexible work market look like to you? Definitely. Um, so great question. Um, I'll just, obviously, I, 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 uh, I think about this stuff a lot, but I, I totally could be wrong. So take everything I say with a grain of salt. Um, 
So I think the future of work, the biggest, the biggest opportunity I would say that has evolved over the last year is that enterprise is now interested in flexible work. And I think it's a bottoms up. Um, it's not necessarily that they wanted it that way, like from a top down view, it's that the talent, right? The employees have experienced it. And now many don't want to go back to the way it was, right? Cause they realized productivity hasn't dipped at all in the last year. In fact, a lot of folks have pushed, like have had some of the, the, the best years they've had, you know, uh, potentially ever. Um, and so folks are saying, why would I commute two hours a day uh, if I don't have to and I can be just as good at my job, right? Um, and if you flash back, right, there's some macro trends here. So um, square feet per employee has been, it, you know, although it got really affected by COVID, the truth is it's been shrinking for 40 years now. Um, you know, it was closer to, you know, it's four to 500 square feet per employee in the late 70s. And, uh, you know, as recently as the mid 2010s, it's been closer to 125 square feet per employee. So um, that's a trend that's just been sort of happening for a while. So what does that mean for coworking? Well, I think for uh, the capital structure of how these deals are done, you know, we worked at a nice job of creating a lot of upside for itself. And, and I think a lot of the others as well, right? Industrious and Notel, et cetera. And when markets are, are good, right? It's, um, you can capture a lot of significant upside and that's why the valuations um, you know, rose as a result. Um, but in case there are shocks in the market, right? And you have a glut of space, your, your ability to, to cover your liabilities becomes really challenged if you don't have just a massive uh, ability to raise cheap capital. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I think the structure of how these deals done is, is changed forever. Um, I think uh, you know, people describe them as management agreements. Um, and I think that's probably where it's going to stay. Yeah. I think the days of the $300 a foot build out are, are done. Um, and uh, I'm probably not the first, nor I, will I be the last to say that. Right. Um, so the structure of the deals will change. I think it'll be more of a partnership between the landlord and the, the space operator, right? So, so landlords, you know, generally speaking, have outsourced a lot of what they do, right? They outsource sales to brokerages and they outsource management for the most part to property managers, right? Um, and, um, and so in this way, I think they're just like the co-working operators are just another type of, of manager. But um, I think that the way those relationships are going to operate will just will create less upside for the operator, but also hedge their downside so that they're not stuck with outsized live and outsized risk in case another market shock comes up. Yep. Flexibility. Uh, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so now I'll just talk about like how I think work will happen. And um, I think so if you're an employee for a, a company, right, um, I think your week will become a little bit more flexible, right? And so what we're calling it is just is hybrid HQ, right? Where you'll work some days from home, you'll work some days from the office, um, and those office days will be heavy on collaboration and team meetings and, and head, you know, uh, like brainstorming type of stuff. And then when you're doing like what we used to call the work of the work, you can kind of do it from anywhere, right? If you think about what the office used to represent, right, you couldn't do your job unless you were in the office. Uh, that couldn't be further from the truth today, right? So what the office is needs to evolve, right? And it needs to serve a, a certain purpose. And so I think, you know, if I'm hearing one common thing, and we talk to a lot of, uh, of business owners and landlords and companies and all kinds of stuff, uh, you know, over the last year, um, it's that it's got to be a place to build culture, right? And give people check those boxes of, of having that um, fun collegial environment and also, um, you know, collaborating and trading ideas and all that good stuff. Yep. And then when you're, 
when you're actually doing the work, you can kind of do it from wherever. So for us, right, uh, if you're working from home, I think that's great. If you're working from the office, I think that's great too. And we have built technology just like we have deployed for NYU to help companies um, sort of uh, give employees the ability to like book space ahead of time and book conference rooms and know that everything is, is COVID safe and it, it, it links with their calendars. And I think um, the idea is to give both the employees visibility into, you know, what spaces are available ahead of time without having to necessarily have a dedicated desk. Cause I think companies are less likely to be dedicating specific spaces to people and more likely to be, you know, sharing spaces among, among a bunch of users, um, especially if people aren't going to be in the office five days a week. And then there's that happy medium, which is home isn't necessarily the best environment for everyone all the time. Uh, And there's a lot of, um, you know, what we call work near home, right? There's restaurants and hotels and um, even, you know, work near home could be uh, a co-working space that someone else might call their headquarters. But for you, it's just near where you live. And so it's a place for you to do heads down work, right? And so our vision of work near home is it's, uh, you know, remote is really in the eye of the beholder, right? And it, it really just depends where you are and, and uh, in the type of environment you're looking for. So for us, um, I know this sounds super corny, but like my why, like why I do this is uh, we want to empower every human on the planet to to find the perfect where to complement their why. Um, and I think the important thing is like a space where you're in hitting your flow state and really feeling good might not be the same as for me, right? Like you might like some, you might need absolute silence and and perfect light. And I might like a slightly crowded environment and an edgy coffee shop, right? And I think uh, our goal is to empower individuals to choose that best space for themselves um, so that they can be happy. And when they're happy, they'll be comfortable. And when they're comfortable, they'll do their best work. So um, that, that's our goal here at Kettle Space. And uh, we're going to continue to try and execute that vision over the next couple of years. Awesome, Dan. Love it. Thanks for, thanks for joining and sharing the story. Um, I think it's super topical and timely in today's world. And it seems like you guys are just reacting to how things are changing and, and building an awesome business. So really appreciate you coming on and, and telling your story. How can people find you guys? So you can uh, check out our website, uh, www.kettlespace.com. You can find us on Twitter uh, at Kettlespace, Instagram at Kettlespace. Um, and if you want to uh, hang out with me, uh, I'm at DJ Rosie on Twitter. Uh, and I think I'm the same on Instagram. So um, hit me up. And uh, also my email, if you want to chat, is just dan at kettlespace.com. Awesome, Dan. Well, thanks so much for joining. Um, we look forward to following your progress, man. Likewise. Have a wonderful right, day. You too, see you, Dan.